गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालये कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तदभक्ताय नमो नमः प्रणाम टू ऑल ऑफ यू वेलकम अगेन वन मोर टाइम वी आर कंटिन्यू विद आवर सीरीज इन रेडिकल पर्सनलिज्म टुडे वी फाइंड आवरसेल्फ्स इन मीटिंग नंबर 20 where we will be seeing the third part on our series um, divine ignorance third part last part where we will be talking about the dark night of the soul <clears throat> but as usual let's make first a brief recap of what we shared last tuesday second part on divine ignorance when we talked about knowing through unknowing paradox and chaos where we share how a big part of learning will be unlearning a big part of knowing will be unknowing not to stop thinking but to set aside certain assumptions we may have when approaching the infinite and approaching everything for that matter and we also spoke how the divine especially the absolute god he cannot be thought he can be loved but not thought so the importance of knowing through unknowing again regarding in relation to god that's what that implies he is not only what we think he is what we know about him but much more we share in this connection the notion of first and second naivete or the notion of the buddhist and koan and childlike mentality and constant openness and wandering connection to reality we also spoke about not only unknowing but paradox and how to coexist with holy paradox and paradox means something apparent apparently contradictory but actually possible and we mentioned how actually every main epiphanies in life belong to the realm of the paradoxical and the counterintuitive so we should remain open to those uh, codes those dynamics in existence even in science in the secular natural world we can find the paradox not need to speak about necessarily only about religion or metaphysics or transcendence in in the realm of we gave examples of ayurvedic herbs water or light mean particle and wave and so on so coexisting with holy paradox and we also talk about chaos and order as another way of knowing through unknowing paradox and chaos but order as well because any of the of this in excess will be a problem excess of order is a problem too much order too much suffocation too much uh, <clears throat> imposition totalitarian regime but too much uh, chaos will be equally mm, uh, affecting us basically so we need both of them chaos and order to balance each other we could say order will be explored territory with things happen according to what we expect to happen and chaos has to do with the realm of potential possibility creativity but all of that waiting for us outside of the comfort zone in the land of the unknown we gave the example of outside of the comfort zones lies a treasure for our potential but that's protected by dragons that we need to confront we need to construct an ark in the middle of the deluge so to say so a few thoughts in terms of summary from what we saw last tuesday so let's begin today with an introduction to today's topic the dark night of the soul So in this class which will be again the third and last class on divine ignorance still we have a few a few more weeks to go regarding the whole series of radical personalism uh 
We'll continue talking about the sacred role of uncertainty, doubt, unknowing, paradox, and so on. But this time through the viewpoint, through the lens, through the terminology of mystery, secrecy, and darkness. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> while the mainly we'll, we will today mainly center on the concept of the dark night of the soul, before turning to that officially, we will uh, share a few ideas in relation to Bhagavan himself and how Bhagavan, despite him being the light of lights, as he's sometimes called in different traditions, he also at the same time is sacred darkness personified. Shamsundar, Ganasham, the dark cloud, the beautiful dark one, and so on. And therefore, if he's so much related to darkness, he's somehow someone to be found in darkness. So let's go to darkness, but don't be... Don't get scared of darkness. Don't be afraid of darkness. Mm -hmm. So let's continue with the first section that we will call God mm, can be found in the darkness. Mm -hmm. So remember, all these terms are not bad, are not something undesirable, like chaos, uncertainty, mm, paradox, darkness. So by darkness, again, we don't mean something bad, something undesirable, but space, a situation in which we don't see what's going on. In that sense, it's dark. Mm -hmm. Although something surely is going on, it's not clear for us what's going on. Mm -hmm. So in connection, of course, with the absolute, this speaks of our willingness mm -hmm, to surrender and trust his sweet will in the darkness, allow him to redeem us mm, and work through us, even if we don't know how and when that will be happening but we will know why. We will trust his intentions. In fact, we could say one of the reasons why the Brahma Muhurta, this early morning period, is so recommended in our tradition is, among other things, is so we can develop some affinity coexist with darkness. Brahma Muhurta is the period of the day before the sun rises. So those dark moments are considered the most spiritually potent of the whole day. Darkness, because why again God God works in darkness, we could say, and we will explain that further today. So we need a whole theology of darkness if we are speaking so much about darkness, our dark Lord, a theology of darkness is required, and we have it as Gaudius. It's not absent from us, but sometimes we may have lost sight of that, so somehow we have to reclaim <clears throat> our own roots, so to say. And of course, not only I will be speaking in terms of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, but as well in connection to other traditions. And as some of you may know, by this time, I'm quite fond of mystical Christianity, among other traditions as well. And for most Christian mystics, this idea of mystery and darkness is very prevalent. For them developed, the, sec the Supreme Beloved, this endless mystery, always, permanently. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we are in, this, in that case, we are expected to be humbled by the mysteries of faith and by the very mystery that God himself is. Humility comes in the face of mystery, if properly approached. And such an experience of God as mystery, reality as mystery, such an experience will never, how to say, allow us to demand the right for absolute certitude on infinity but ex exact opposite. Try to think about that for a moment. Remember, mystery isn't something... When we, when we say mystery, God is mystery, that we don't intend to say 
there this is something you cannot understand but basically we say it is something that you can endlessly understand so we are not promoting not understanding not thinking but understanding how endlessly we can understand the infinite and therefore we can we should never be too sure about who the infinite is and become talk assertive on a toxic level and since I refer to mystical Christianity, and before going to go, what Gaudiya Vaishnavism has to say in this regard, uh, in this section I'll share some interesting quotes from some of the few brave ones who dedicated their lives into the exploration of the unknown of mystery. So let's begin with my dear friend, mentor, senior elder, Richard Rohr. He says in his book, Falling Upward, the following, let me read. People who had any genuine experience always know that they don't know. They are, they are utterly humbled before mystery. They are in awe before the abyss of it all, in wonder at eternity and depth, depth. And they love which is incomprehensible to the mind. So one beautiful definition of those who have any genuine epiphany in relation to the inner realm. They know they don't know, they are humbled before mystery, remain in awe and wonder before the abyss of reality, the wonder, the breadth, the depth of, of, of reality, and they love those things which are incomprehensible to the mind. They can only be loved, not captured by the mind. Because remember, the human mind cannot think the notion of the infinite. Try to think the infinite. Let's see what happens, how much smoke comes from our ears. Then the mind, human mind cannot think the notion of eternal, no beginning, no end, because there is no frame of reference hmm, for, how, for how the mind uses to work, dualistic mind at least. Hmm. And this is okay. This is not only okay, but this is something necessary. Hmm. It's a source of sacred astonishment. To, to collapse in front of infinity and eternity. Like Albert Einstein once said in connection to the principle of mystery and wonder, he interestingly once said another quote, the most beautiful thing that we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. As we already mentioned, chamatkar, rasasar, chamatkar, the essence of rasas, chamatkar, hmm? oh, wonder, astonishment. So he is, he's saying here, the most beautiful thing we can experience is mystery, the source of all true art and science. If you are a stranger to that, atmaha, jivona pimrito hisaha debat, and will say, you are a breathing corpse, you are as good as dead. So God is mystery. Yes, God is related to light, but he's also darkness. Remember, we are talking about that here. God is to be found in darkness. And we are to get acquainted to both with both sides, not only light, but darkness. It's not only about residing in darkness always either, but balancing it with light and light being balanced by darkness. And as we mentioned last class, remember, both chaos and order should coexist in sacred tension, so to say. So we can know something about God, but we can always know more about him. That's the main point here. This knowing more actually, of course, refers to loving him more. 
And there's no end to both, no end to how much we can love and know God. Pierre Taylor de Chardin, another Jesuit mystic, very interestingly also said in this connection, and here we go with the third quote. <clears throat> he famously said, God does not offer himself to our finite beings as a thing all complete and ready to be embraced. For us, his eternal discovery and eternal growth. The more we think we understand him, the more he reveals himself as otherwise. The more we think we hold him, the further he withdraws, drawing us into the depths of himself. Beautiful. Again, he's not offering us a finished product that we can take, consume, and that's it. His eternally disco eternal discovery, eternal growth, eternal ongoing disclosure. We love closure, but eternal reality is an, an ongoing disclosure. And the more we think we got him, he withdraws, basically. And in this way, he's trying to invite us to his further depths in that way. So another way... <clears throat> as to why God remains his mystery, we could say, is because we need him to act in the darkness for our own benefit. We'll speak about this more in the section on Dark Night of the Soul at the end. But a brief trailer here. In other words, the point is, God has to undo our illusions secretly in the darkness. When we are not watching, when we are not in quote-unquote perfect control. So in this sense, we could say, Bhagavan seems to work best underground, not in plain sight. So instead of plundering the mystery that God is, as some Zen masters caution us not to do so, do not plunder the mystery with concepts. Instead of that, we should learn to preserve the mystery that God is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that, another famous <clears throat> Christian mystic. He very beautiful will say, and there, here we go with another quote. Holy theology arises from knees bent before the mystery of the divine. How we fail to understand when we think that the task of theology is to solve the mystery of God, to drag it down to the flat, ordinary wisdom of human experience and reason. The sole office of theology is to preserve the miracle as miracle, to comprehend, defend, and glorify God's mystery precisely as mystery. So another beautiful idea. Holy theology comes from your knees on the floor and not in brain exercise. And the task of the of prop theology proper is not to bring down the mystery and solve the mystery, but to preserve the mystery and to praise God as the mystery that he is. So preserving the mystery that God is also, in another sense, has to do with following him or allowing him, let's say, allowing him to be more in us than what we think he is. We already have our own preconceived idea. Who is Krishna? Who am I? Who, which is my relationship with him? But we have to allow him to be more in our lives than all that he would like to be. Surrender. That, that's the meaning. And never being either excessively certain that we have full faith in him. That's another way of keeping the mystery intact, never asserting, I already have full faith, I fully believe in God. What does it mean to fully believe in God? There's the famous case of Jordan Peterson, that when he was usually asked, do you believe in God? He will reply famously, I try to act 
as if God exists, which is somehow somehow a cryptic kind of reply. So once someone asks him, what do you mean? Further elaborate on this idea of you try to act as if God exists instead of saying yes or no. So let me share his reply to this question. Why don't you say you believe in God and instead you say I try to act as if he exists? So he said, I'm very mind the context in which we are talking here, mystery. Who will have the audacity to claim that they believe in God if they will e examine the, when, the way they live? To claim that you believe in God means that you live out such belief fully. To believe in God doesn't mean to state it, but to fully act out what you believe in. Unless you act it out, you should be very careful about claiming it. God only knows what you will be if you truly believed. If you will truly believe, it will be a transfiguring event. And although we may have experienced some of that to one degree or another, we don't have an idea of the limit of that. <clears throat> so another very interesting notion regarding keeping, preserving the mystery that God is, not being so bold as to claim, I already have full faith in him. What's the meaning of fully believing in God? What will be the result if we will play out the implications of that notion? We have no clue about our potential in terms of belief in faith and so on. So we should be humble and sober in terms of these expressions and preserving the mystery. <clears throat> and of course, in this connection, God remaining a mystery for us Remember the notion of eternal becoming in the life of the absolute. He's not a stagnant entity. So we can never say that we know Krishna fully because he's in an ongoing state. He's always happening, so to say. So let's be very careful of being overconfident basically about something which has no limits. God's eternal unfolding, who God is, and which is our potential for surrender and transformation in connection to him. We don't know the limits of that. There are no limits. If, if God is unlimited, our relation with the unlimited must be unlimited by the nature of the unlimited. So our potential in connection to him is unlimited. So in that sense, we don't have too much an idea of who God is and who we can be in relation to him. And in that sense, we could say we profess a type of theistic agnosticism or agnostic theism, as you may like the best. Because agnostic is someone who, a, a, an atheist is, I don't believe in God. Theistic person is, I believe in God. Agnostic is, I don't know. So in this sense, we are theistic agnostics. We believe in God. We know he exists, but I don't know. Agnostic, we don't know how much, which is the scope for Krishna's existence, who he is. We don't dare to affirm we know Krishna fully. In that sense, we are agnostics, only in that sense. So we can speak about theistic agnosticism, a new, a new flavor of our doctrine. <clears throat> so in other words, again, we could say that God, God is always bigger hmm, than the boxes that we build for God in our own minds. So we should wait, not waste too much time protecting the boxes, protecting our projection and structure, who God is. He's always bigger than our own ideas about him. God is not our idea about God. These boxes that I'm talking about are basically our mental structures that are keeping us in the comfort zone 
and on many occasions are giving us a very distorted picture hmm, of, of who God actually is. Hmm. So we may be too sure this is God, and actually that's the exact opposite of who God actually is. In this connection, the medieval Christian mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart, once he famously prayed saying, God, rid me of God. In other words, God, rid me of the wrong ideas about you. I have lots of wrong ideas about God. God, rid me of that false God, false, that false notion of God. In other words, we need to find whatever it helps us to experience the God who rids us of the God we need to be, to be rid of. We don't, we don't need to be rid of God. We need to be rid of <laughs> false limiting notions limiting myths and beliefs about him. In fact, many atheists sometimes say, well, I don't believe in God. And mostly what, what they say is, I don't believe in a certain idea of God, a certain belief, certain notion that people have. And probably I will say, I don't believe in, in God, in that God either, in that idea you deny, because that's not God. That's not corresponding with who God ideally is. So, But unfortunately, despite some atheists will say, I don't believe in God, referring to that a particular unbelievable idea of God. That's, that unbelievable, unbelievable idea is the one that many believers unfortunately embrace. And by doing that, they are somehow promoting atheism. One of the main currents for atheism, the main udiponas or triggers are people who have the wrong idea about God and promote that as if that will, will be the real thing. So to conclude this first section, let's uh, one more time, just in case, if you allow me, let's repeat what we already mentioned, maybe hundred link times, but we may still need to hear it one more time and a few more times, which is God can never be fully known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he can be fully loved. Someone may say, you can have pure love for Krishna and we could say, okay, but love is the king of knowledge. Krishna says in the Gita, Raja Vidya, love is the king of knowledge. But in that sense, if you have full love, then you have full knowledge because love is the king of knowledge. So in that sense, we could say, okay, God can be fully loved and therefore God can be fully known. But however, as we may know or intuit, the nature of love itself is that it's always increasing. So in that sense, we can always love God more. So you can never say, I fully love Krishna. You can have prem, pure love for God, but doesn't mean you cannot have more of that. You follow? So you may be loving Krishna fully, but you can always love him more fully because, again, God is unlimited and our potential for loving him is unlimited. Let's get acquainted and accustomed to dealing to deal with these notions of eternal, unlimited, ongoing. So if God can always be fully, more fully loved, you can never fully love God. And therefore, at least in this sense, since he cannot be fully loved, therefore he cannot be fully known. And there we make full circle and go back to this idea. God can never be fully known. So we should remain humbled by that principle of the mystery that God is in that sacred darkness. <clears throat> so let's go to the next section after sharing some quotes and example from other tradition. Now we'll go more specifically to our own. Next section will be called Mystery and Secrecy in our Gaudiya tradition. So needless to say, again, not only mystical Christianity or other traditions conceive of God as, as mystery, but we Gaudias do so as well. But before going there, let me contrast for a minute uh, 
this Christian stance with how sometimes Gaudius misrepresent their tradition by being overtly certain again about who God is because we Gaudiya Vaishnava have so many details about who Krishna is, his life associates, loving interactions and so on. So that may take us to this idea of I know who God is instead of thinking I can never fully know him. And even if we as Gaudiya's receive this information, that's information, not transformation. Of course, that comes from the transformed heart of others. This information is the revelation of others coming from the sadhus, parampara. But it doesn't mean that we have realized the revelation that was realized by those who are giving that to us. So therefore, we should be careful to become overconfident. Be careful with becoming overconfident, sorry. While feeling that we have the truth in our grasp. As Gaudias, we know so much about Krishna. No. So before to <clears throat> before going to some Gaudi examples in this connection of how we also conceive of God, the divine, the sweet absolute as mystery and secrecy, let me share a few words about the term mystery itself. What does it mean, mystery? Of course, most of us will relate the term mystery immediately to something unknown. And that's correct, of course. Mystery is something we cannot fully grasp yet. But more specifically, interestingly, the term mystery is etymologically related to mystic presence. Hmm? Mystic presence, mystery. So there is some deep connection between mystery and mystical. Hmm? They are not divorced from each other. It's the same root, so to say. Mystery and mystical. Hmm? And misty. <laughs> So you, you should remember Rudolf Otto, another mystical author of Christianity, says he has this expression of mysterium tremendum or tremendous mystery, <coughs> referring to God, the overwhelming mystery, the mystery that can't be, that cannot be penetrated or the unknowable mystery, which refers again with the divine, specifically being perceived as mysterious, utterly fascinating and urgent. Try to imagine. That's that's how the gopis experience Krishna, basically, when they run behind the clarion call, the flute call. Utterly fascinating, urgent, leaving all behind, but deeply mysterious, deeply surrounded and embraced by a whole thick layer of mystery and darkness. Mystery and tremendum. So yes, we go the Vaishnav also conceived uh, ultimate reality in terms of mystery and secrecy. So let's share some few examples in this connection. For example, in the Bhagavatam, Srimad Bhattam, the Chatur Shloki, these four famous verses that summarize the whole treatise, at the very beginning, before the four verses, in verse 31, chapter 9, canto 2, Chatur Shloki is uh, the content of the Chatur Slok is presented in terms of two words, Rahasya and Paramaguhya. So Rahasya means secret or confident mystery, mystery. Paramaguhya means supremely secret. So that is that knowledge about Krishna is Paramaguhya, supremely secret or confidential. And the method to realize it, which is Bhakti, is Rahasya. It's mystery itself. The Gita also, in the Bhagavad Gita, you find expressions like Rajavida, Rajaguhyam, Bhakti is the king of secrets, or different levels of Guhya, you know, Guhyatamam, different levels of secrecy. 
of secret confidential content or other sections in Shastra, Dharmasya Tattvam Nihitam Guhayam, Reduce Nigdastasis Satya Guhyam Apiyuta. So constantly this idea of secrecy is being introduced here in relation to all these confidential topics. We could also say that Krishna is a mystery <clears throat> in the sense that no matter our own efforts, we can only know him by his own will and grace. In that sense, he remains a mystery. No, the door is closed and he has the key and the door can only be opened from the inside where he is, not from where we are. We can only knock on the door and cry. That's our part. But the, the rest, it all depends on him. One well-known example in this connection is that one of King Uparichar mentioned in the Mahabharata. He was performing a yajna sacrifice for the pleasure of Bhagavan. And he appeared, Bhagavan appeared at the sacrifice in order to accept the oblations, but only the king of Parichar could see him. So Brihaspati, who was there as the chief priest, became enraged, knowing that Bhagavan was there, but not being able to see him. And so he threw even the sacrificial ladle into the air in frustration. And he shouted no, famously, why can't I see him? And the assembled devotees then tried to pacify Brihaspati and they told him, well, Brihaspati, neither you nor us, we can see, nor us, we can, we can see the Lord, our will. It's not possible. Only those he favors can see him. So again, in that sense, Bhagavan remains a mystery. Another example in this connection is the famous example of Brahma, in the beginning of creation, very clear point given from the very beginning of creation. When he wanted to see Krishna again after his original darshan, hearing his voice, but he was unable to do so. He was unable to find Krishna despite he searched for many years because Krishna was not showing himself. So that shows that Bhagavan's form cannot be achieved by one's own endeavor. It's only by Bhagavan's mercy that one can see his form. Or famous example of Narad Muni, his previous life where also he's heard some voice, has some epiphany. He wanted to see that again. Not possible in that lifetime. Mm -hmm. So that's a mystery. And it, it, if Krishna discloses his form, he grants us some form of revelation or epiphany. It is also advised that we should deal with such mystery, with such revelation in secrecy, mm -hmm. not to make a public cheap show of that. Like Bhagavan says to Aditi, the eighth cant of the Bhagavatam. He says, that which is very confidential is successful if kept secret. Not to be selfish and exploit the revelation, but just be careful of how you, what do you do with that? Krishna in the Gita says, 10 chapter, 38 verse, of all secret things, I'm silence. So you should know when to keep silence, when to embrace secrecy. Krishna himself is that secret thing. Silence is the most secret thing. Hari Bhakta Vilasanath and Goswami will say, Gopayet Guru Radmana, Gopayet Devatamishtam, Gopayet Chaniyamantram, Gopayet Niyamalikam. Higher Malika, higher Mantra, higher Istadev, hide your Guru. Not put them in a closet that kidnap them, <laughs> but hide them. Put them in the most secret chamber of your heart and love and serve them in a very sober, confidential way. Mystery, secrecy. Another way in which we Gaudias conceive of this upgrade through mystery, so to say, could be seen in the idea of divine separation, Vipralamba or Viraha. 
No, separation can be seen as a synonym, synonym with uh, the idea of unknowing that we shared last week. I'm further knowing after that. No, like when you meet Krishna, you know him on certain level. He disappears and separation upgrades your realization of him in that darkness. And when he reappears in, in union, you rediscover an upgraded version of him and of yourself. This is a clear example all throughout our literature, famous example of that being the very last verse of Sri Shad Goswami Astakam by Srinivas Acharya when he will say here, Adi, Herada, Braja, Diviki, Chalaliti, Hinanda, Sunakuto, Sri Govar, Dana, Kalpa, Padapatali, Kalindivane, Kuto. So the, how the Goswamis will lament in madness in the very day on the daily basis in Vrindavan calling, Oh Radha, Oh Lalita, Oh Son of Nanda Maharaj. Where are all of you now? Are you just are in the hill of Govardhan? Are you on the under the trees in the forest of Braj? Are you in the banks of the Jamuna? Where are you? Where are you? And calling, calling them in separation. So we must imbibe this mood. We cannot imitate the Goswamis, but we are experiencing separation of some form. And we should understand through this separation is a form of darkness, it's a form of mystery. And after separation comes a reunion, a meeting, a rediscover, an upgrade of the person we are meeting after the separation. We have to rediscover our deity through uncertainty, if you want to use those terms. Uncertainty is there to throw us into that pool of separation, uncertainty, and then rediscover that same person in a new layer. So we should think, how can I apply this in my day-to-day -day life? And thus grow and develop my relationship with Bhagavan. Also, another famous verse coming from our Gaudiya tradition in connection to how God remains perpetual mystery is the famous, almost final prayer of Brahma in the Brahma Stuti after the Brahma Vimohan Lila, which is a very appropriate example in this connection. Remember, Brahma Vimohan Lila means Brahma being overtly sure about who Krishna is virtually certain about the darshan he had at the beginning of creation, but then when Krishna shows himself in Braj with his friends in the informality of the picnic, he was completely overwhelmed. And, 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 and then he has this huge epiphany, huge Aishvarya revealing, and, and Brahma was totally humbled by that, realizing, I don't know anything. So he prayed in the verse 38 of the 14th chapter in 10th canto, he says like this, there are people who say, I know everything about Krishna. Let them think that way. In fact, Brahma said, I was one of those five minutes ago. As far as I'm concerned, I do not wish to speak very much. I, will, I do not wish to speak very much about this matter. Oh, my Lord, let me say this much. As far as your opulences are concerned, they are all beyond the reach of my mind, body, and words. <clears throat> Again, Brahma is pretty humbled here after the Bimohan, after his forehead, foreheads were spinning like nothing. First, he was very certain, I know who Krishna is, and this guy seems like an imposter. Eventually, he had the proper darshan epiphany, unknowing, and further knowing, and so on. Something that comes to this, in, to my mind in this connection, going back for a minute to mystical Christianity, is a method of prayer that some of them have called Centering prayer. What's this? In centering prayer, mystical Christians don't try to think about God during that period of prayer. 
but they simply maintain their intention to consent to God's presence and action within us, just as he is, and allow him to further introduce himself as he considers, but without demanding to know what that is, who he is, or trying to conceptualize him or think about him, to think God. So again, in connection to this, to not have any idea, any notion of God while meditating or praying for some Godius may sound like heresy or at least shocking. Because maybe a devotee may quickly run to meditate. Okay, Krishna's form, Krishna's blue form, Krishna's flute, Krishna's peacock feather. But the point is, what's our idea of blue? What's the blue that Krishna is? What's the peacock feather? He plays a flute, but what's our idea of playing a flute? And what's the actual flute he plays? And so on. <laughs> so this centering prayer is actually not talking about let's do away with the personal God. That's not the point. But the point is, let's not be too attached hmm, to whatever idea we may have of God at present. Hmm? While thinking that such idea is everything that we already know him and therefore, we don't need to upgrade our sense of who Bhagavan is. Let's be careful about that. That's the point. Because remember, he's infinity personified. <laughs> and we should be open always for further introduction from infinity toward us. Infinite introduction. Because he's always infinitely more than what we think it is. What we think he is. Therefore, our relationship with, with the divine, again, needs to remain in a constant state of upgrade through this principle of mystery. Mm. On some level, he's a mystery for us, and he will always be, and it's okay. Mm. Because he's always growing and becoming more than what we think he is, what, more than what he is and more than what we think he is. So in this connection regarding the ongoing dynamic nature of the ultimate reality, we could also say that the very nature of reality is impermanence. But what do I mean by impermanence? More specifically, I mean a state of constant change and perpetual becoming. Hmm. That's the nature of the Absolute. And that starts with Bhagavan himself, again, with all of reality, constant becoming, starting by its very root, Bhagavan. Now, to put it another word, God is not a noun, but a verb, a very active verb. It's not a st stagnant, stiff concept, but a very dynamic one. He's always happening, as we say. It's not that he happened in the past and he's there like a statue in a museum. Therefore, the thing that doesn't change about God is that he's always changing. He's always evolving. He's always more beautiful. He's always loving, loved more, loving more. That, that's the thing that doesn't change. He's always increasing <clears throat> his loving capacity, his loving interaction, and so on. So how much we can claim, I know him. He's already somewhere else now. <laughs> so what exercises or practices like centering prayer or similar practices or ideas like the ones we are sharing in this series, what, what they are trying to, to, to give, to propose is let's try to adapt. Hmm? to the mystery of the ultimate reality. Let's learn how to eternally coexist with the mysterious. Hmm? As, it, as, as it is famously said, God can most easily be lost by being thought found. Hmm? When you think, I found God, you lost him. Hmm. When you are open, I don't know who he is, you're knowing something about him. Like Chilasir Mars will say, don't approach the positive with a positive attitude but with a negative one. Negative in that sense, I don't know you. 
I cannot claim, I cannot establish myself in that way. So let's conclude this section, not only mentioning what we already mentioned, but also we should say that Krishna is not only a mystery for us, but Krishna is even a mystery to himself. There are many verses in the Bhagavatam which establish this. Let me share one of them, which comes in the 10th canto, 87th chapter, verse 41, where the personified Vedas are praying to him. So they tell him that because you are unlimited, neither the lords of heaven nor even you yourself can ever reach the end of your glories. So basically the truth is saying you don't know your, the reach of the limit of your glories. Why? Because there is no limit. So how can you know that? That's the idea implied here. Now, you cannot know something that does not exist. And the limit of God's glories does not exist. So you cannot know that. Not even he can know them. So Krishna cannot know his own the limits of his own glories because there is no limit to such glories. So what to speak if we want to apply that criteria, that logic, what to speak of then Krishna not knowing the extent of his own glories and beauty in connection to Radha's love and wanting to taste all that in his most glorious form as Sriman Mahaprabhu, Sri Gorsundar Kijai. We need another, another whole series for that in particular exploration. But that's another example of how God himself remains a mystery to himself. He's okay with that. He expands his own limit. He expands his lilas, but he's not complaining about mystery. Therefore, <clears throat> having shown, hopefully on some level at least, how God himself is mystery personified, how he is found in the darkness, let's now turn to the official title of today's talk. In connection to us, Sadakas, going through mystery, going through darkness as a crucial part of our inner journey. And that's the name of the next section, The Dark Night of the Soul, which is the title of today's talk as well. And whatever we saw till now, it's kind of a preparation for these topics. All of this, of course, intimately connected. So we already spoke about how Krishna is himself mystery, secret, light, but also darkness. In fact, as we mentioned, he's known as Ganesham. Gana means cloud. And Sham means dark. So dark cloud. There's an interesting mystical treatise in Christianity called the cloud of unknowing. So somehow we can connect Ganesham, the dark cloud, with this idea as well. So now we will turn to our own darkness, the dark night of the soul, in connection to Krishna's darkness. Let's speak about how, how to embrace the dark one by embracing our own darkness. And again, darkness, not as a bad word. So what do we mean by, <clears throat> by the dark night of the soul? I mean, some of you may not, may never have heard about this expression. This famous one, famous notion coming from mystical Christianity, from Saint John of the Saint John of the Cross. Sorry, but this is an, an idea that can be very naturally applied to Gaudiya Vaishnavism and spiritual journey in general, depicting the different inner experiences. So the idea of the dark of a dark night of the soul basically implies one's being led one being led into a darker space where deeper healing and learning will take place. But beyond our knowing, again, remember that when I say dark, 
What I mean here is absence of knowing. Something is happening. You can feel that. You can know that. But you don't know what's happening. So you don't know what's like when you are in darkness. You don't see what's going on. But something's going on. So whatever you don't know, whatever you have forgotten is dark to you, so to say, in that sense. So for the same reason, when we say things like the cloud of unknowing, of course, by cloud, we are not speaking about the cloud in the sky, literally, but the cloud of unknowing between you and God that somehow creates a particular dynamics in the relationship. But again, this is not something bad, something to be scared about. On the contrary, as we will hopefully conclude. So, so the dark night of the soul <clears throat> is not an event that, that one passes once through and gets beyond and that's it. Goodbye, dark night of the soul. But rather we could say it's a deep ongoing process that characterizes one's spiritual life. In this sense, the dark night, we could say, is the person's hidden life with God. St. John will, of the cross will take this even further and he'll say that the dark night of the soul is not just the activity of God, but it's God himself visiting us, acting inside us, through us. He says that the dark, this dark night is an inflow of God into the soul. So in other words, this idea of dark night is not primarily something, some form of impersonal darkness, like a difficult situation or distressful psychological condition, but not something, but someone. Bhagavan himself, the dark Lord, Kanasham, Sham Sundar, entering our hearts are working that. So these dark nights may be characterized, as you may already imagine, by uncertainty. Again, you don't know what's going on. You are in darkness, characterized by unknowing, characterized by being thrown out of our comfort zone so we can learn to coexist with mystery. Again, we need to learn that. And in those moments, of course, it may not be clear what's the way to move forward, what's going on. I feel like I'm thrown into a pool of darkness. <laughs> so in those chapters of life, what the thing is uncertain and dark, the most important thing is not so much how to move forward, but to begin with, to have deep faith that there is a moving forward. Even if I don't know how yet, I have to learn and wait. And therefore, by having that proper faith, we will be invite, invited to grow in our unconditional faith in that connection. About how Krishna is orchestrating every single chapter of our lives without the need of knowing how he's doing that in every detail. Without the need of having to know that to see if he's actually doing the things right or his job right or not or something like that. So by having that foundational trust, the rest will unfold organically and accordingly. So that's the, the, therefore, this is the experience of the dark night of the soul. And we, in other words, we could say dark night of the soul invites us to stay with the pain of life. Life comes, pain comes, and it's not something to get rid of as soon as possible. We must learn sometimes to stay with the pain of life. We must learn to stay without answers sometimes. We must learn to stay without conclusions. Sometimes even some days or more, we may have to stay without meaning. But knowing there is meaning, knowing there are answers, knowing there is hope, all the, despite we don't know 
which is that, despite our not seeing it. So in other words, sometimes problems come and we may not be able to solve them. And it's okay. At least we won't be solving the problems like we try to solve a math mathematical problem. Here's the problem and it's a problem to be solved. We, we may need to hold the problem and allow the problem to transform us. That's a totally different orientation to how we deal with problems, basically. Not, don't, don't see the problems as something that needs to be solved. We don't need to solve problems. How about allowing the problems to solve us? What about changing the orientation? Problems are not to be solved. They are to solve us. Allow them to solve you. And that this, this situation, this dark night, may be the path we are going through now. Whether we know it or not, we may not know. Again, dark is not about words. Don't be afraid of darkness. <clears throat> so as we already mentioned, Bhagavan prefers to work in the darkness. Why? Because there we are not in control. Of course, we are never in control, <laughs> in full control. But... Sometimes we try, we want to think we are. So that's the secret sometimes why we ourselves tend to avoid those spaces of unknowing. And by contrast, many sacred ancient cultures see these moments, these periods as times for incubation, uh, transformation, necessary hibernation, hibernation, sorry. So for them, that becomes sacred space. But sometimes that's the space we most avoid because we are not in control. There's an interesting work on the dark night of the soul by Gerald May. He's a psychologist. So he approaches this idea through a psychological lens. Interesting. And a few words I'll share here from his treatise. Not literal reading, but sharing some ideas he mentions there. <clears throat> So he mentions that regarding the dark night of the soul, the very darkness of the night, of the dark night, implies nothing sinister, as we already mentioned, but the fact that redemption takes place in hidden ways, beneath our knowledge and understanding. That healing, redemption happens mysteriously, again, in secret, beyond our conscious control. And for that reason, it can be disturbing, it can be scary, but at the end, it always ends up working in our benefit. So it may be scaring us, but it's helping, saving us. And in fact, it is in those dark periods, we could say that Krishna will heal us secretly the most, even without our noticing it. It's interesting. We may be being healed, and we sometimes think, okay, if Krishna will give me mercy or heal me or help me, I will be fully aware of that. Probably not. Probably when you are most being most healed, you are the less aware of that. And why this is so? Because Gerald May said, if we will know what's actually taking place, I think we have to admit that we will likely try to sabotage any movement forward, any movement toward true freedom. In other words, he says, if we really knew what we are called to relinquish in our spiritual path, our defense mechanisms will never allow us to take even the first step. As embarrassing as that may sound, as that may be. So that's why sometimes the only way we can enter the deeper dimensions of our journey is by being unable to see where we are going. 
<laughs> now, in other words, Gerald May concludes the dark, the night is dark for our protection, for our benefit, to protect us from ourselves, so to say. And of course, as our dark nights deepen, proportionate, of course, to how much we agree to them, we find ourselves re recovering, so to say, our love for mystery. Remember, when we were children, we used to love mystery. We were very good friends with mystery, as we spoke last class, childlike, con-like mentality. The world was full of mystery for, for us children. Let me move the curtain here. Sorry. So for us child's children, the love the, the world was full of mystery and we loved it. I mean, that was what made gave meaning to our daily day after day life. But as we grew older, mystery became something else, unfortunately. We slowly accepted the indoctrination. As we mentioned, that mystery exists only to be solved, not to be preserved, not to be embraced. Hmm? but to be sold as soon as possible. So for many of us at present as quote-unquote adults, eventually mystery for us became an adversary, a danger, a threat. And knowing became a weakness. We need to know, we need to be certain, we need to be perfect, we need to solve stuff. And there we are. <laughs> so what we are suggesting here, of course, is an, an ongoing reversal of this adjustment. So we can return to a proper spirit of awe and wonder and chamatkar and learning. For further understanding this notion of the dark night of the soul, let me for a minute share a notion that also I shared some months ago in another class, What Shines in the Darkness, concept that anthropologists call liminality, sometimes called liminal space. So this comes from the Latin word limen, which means threshold. Threshold. So what's a liminal space? A liminal space is inducing a type of inner crisis to help us hmm, to make a needed transition. Maybe we do not choose that voluntarily, but it comes. So liminal space is always an experience of displacement in the hope of a new point of view. Hmm. You cannot acquire a new point of view unless you are displaced from where you are now, probably at your comfort zone. So basically means to pull us out of our, whatever, private absolute center. <laughs> and we will experience that as a crisis. But again, crisis is not a bad word. In fact, the very word crisis means this decisive point, decisive point, turning point, like a portal, like a breakthrough, not a breakdown. So crisis is not something bad that shouldn't be happening or something like that. So this crisis, which is experienced in liminal space, in the, in the dark night of the soul, again, it's a portal, it's a breakthrough, not a breakdown, to make a play of words. It's a situation that demands a decision from us, demands individual responsibility, demands that we take charge of our own lives. And probably that's why we are so afraid of it, generally. But actually, we should look for those moments, those sacred spaces, Voluntarily, ideally, not just to be thrown that by force of circumstance. Because if we don't find liminal space in our lives, we will start idolizing normalcy, so to say. Worshipping status quo and mediocre situations and dynamics. 
Christian example of this threshold space, so to say, comes to mind is Jesus being led into the wilderness, as you may know, where according to the history, story, sorry, to the story narrated in the Bible, he was tempted or he was to be tempted by the devil in the desert prior to his crucifixion, basically. So his sojourn into the desert represents this liminal space, this dark night of the soul. He was there 40 days, according to the story, 40 days, 40 nights, starving, fasting, alone in the wilderness. Try to put yourself into those shoes. So 40 days in the underworld, so to say, of dark assumptions, confusion, and fear, and confronting your dragons, and extracting order out of chaos. Again, threshold space, dark night of the soul. In this regard, Carl Jung will see, say also interestingly, no tree can grow to heaven unless its roots reach down to hell. Unless you go through the dark night, don't expect to reach light properly. It is for this reason that enlightenment is so rare, basically. Because who is willing to do that, to embark upon such a journey? That's ego death. That's basically the journey of ego death. And as we know in the Gita, Arjuna, for example, when Krishna is suggesting him, kill your false ego, and Arjuna said, I prefer to be killed by the Kurus, disarmed without offering any resistance, that to go through the death that you are suggesting me to go, ego death. That's way more difficult and painful <laughs> in one sense, painful for our <coughs> false sense of being. But we need to go there. There's no enlightenment without that. We need to be taught the language not only of ascending and transcending, but also the language of descending, a language that teaches us to enter willingly, trustingly into the dark periods of life, but being afraid of dark, darkness. And of course, in those dark moments, in those liminal spaces, living and accepting our own reality will not feel very spiritual, very glorious, may feel more embarrassing and humiliating in many situations. It will feel like, like we are on the edges rather than dealing with the very cream or substance and essence of reality. And therefore, that's why most of us run from that and run toward more esoteric or dramatic postures instead of burying the mystery of darkness, the mystery of God's presence in those dark nights. Mm -hmm. But again, we are invited to go there. Like Kunti Devi's famous prayer, Vipadas and Tutasas, Tatra Tatra, Jagat Guru, and so on. Mm -hmm. He's asking to Krishna, bring me, throw me more difficulties. The more complex, more liminal space I'm being thrown in, the more I upgrade my darshan of you. The more I found you through these difficulties, the more difficulties come, the better I see you, she's saying to Krishna. I have an upgraded darshan of you through darkness, through liminality. So anyhow, apart from what we have described till now, and before finishing, give me a few more minutes with your, without your permission, let's share a few words on the deeper, more penetrating, if you say, if you will, and usually more painful, not something bad again, Painful for what? For whom? More dimensions of the night of the soul. You know, the dark night of the soul have different dimensions. St. John of the Cross categorized and explained 
all this in different layers. We are not entering to the details here. I'm today giving just a very brief overview of the Dark Knight. You can go through more details to other works. So one of these deeper layers will have to do with changes in people's habitual sense of relationship with God. You know, in other words, you are accustomed to perceive God in a certain way and perceive and conceive your relationship with God in a certain way. And in the dark night of the soul, that's turned upside down, that's modified. So a common experience in this connection will be to feel that God has disappeared from your life, which is pretty intense experience, as you may imagine. But actually, God has not disappeared in the dark night of the soul. What has disappeared in those cases is the usual way we used to conceive God in the past, yesterday. While now, he, God is actually getting closer and closer in the darkness. Do you follow my point? No. We are accustomed to relate with him in, in some way, in some level. But if he gets closer, we are not accustomed to that proximity. That's that new proximity is unknown to us. And therefore, instead of getting accustomed and realizing, oh, you are getting closer, we may be, insist, where are you as usual? And you feel, as usual, you are no longer there. You seem to disappear. But it's not that he got further. He's closer. You follow? It's not that he's getting far and far away or that even disappearing. Oh, he's getting more and more intimate. But, but that intimacy, that new degree of intimacy is totally new and unknown. And that's why we may not be accustomed and think he's no, not there anymore. So in, other, in order for, this, for us to survive such experience, then we have to be able to relinquish our attachment to whatever idea or experience we have had of Bhagavan till yesterday, so to say, which is real and beautiful, but... Now there is the need for something else, deeper. And therefore, we have to allow him to further introduce, further reveal himself to us in the darkness. That's the main prayer, one of the main prayers of St. Francis of Azizi. It is said that entire nights he will spend praying like this, praying to God, who are you, who I am, who am I, who are you, who am I in relation to you, who are you, who am I. It's not so easy to reply to these two questions because there will be always an ongoing, the question may be always the same. The reply will be all an ongoing revelation. Sanatan Goswami similarly asked to Mahaprabhu, who am I? So never be too sure about knowing the answers to these two questions. On a daily basis, we should ask that to ourselves. That's real prayer in depth. Who are you? And who am I? Who are you today for me? And who am I for you? Which is our relationship? And next today, tomorrow, and later today, again, and so on. So yes, of course, this darkness can be overwhelming. And we may feel very uncomfortable there if we are not accustomed to navigate those waters. But we should try to embrace it instead of attempt, instead of attempting to solve, quote-unquote, it, it as quickly as we can. It's not about solving the problem, remember, but allowing the problem to solve us. So instead of trying to move forward, again, during these periods of dark night of the soul, better try to go through, not move forward and leave the situation as soon as possible. Not try just to obtain relief from pain and uncertainty as quick as you can. But try to hold the tension, accept the circumstances, learn to see, hear from the circumstances, change whatever needs to be changed. 
that's actual life. That's actual spiritual life. Change, progress. Mm -hmm. So remain open to whatever needs to be accepted and changed. In other words, begin with a foundational yes of acceptance, foundational acceptance of whatever is happening rather with a non-foundational no. Philosopher mm -hmm. Maharaj will beautifully describe Om, Omkar, as a yes, a big yes, acceptance, foundational acceptance to reality and hope. Mm -hmm. So this yes also means you, you cannot start seeing or understanding anything if you start with a no, if you start with a no of denial, of rejection of reality, of what's coming to you. You won't be able to decode anything of life. So you have to start with a yes, the yes of basic acceptance of reality. And, and basic acceptance means I remain open to whatever reality wants to show to me. I want very, I will not quickly label, analyze, categorize things in out, in or out, good and bad. That's a no. Yes, the, the no, no, no rejection and denial and control. But yes means leave, you have to leave the field open, so to say. Mm -hmm. So this initial yes will put in context whatever necessary no's mm, may have to come in time. We are not against no, but first invoke the foundational yes. Mm -hmm. So therefore, once we have learned to, to invoke this foundational yes, of course, later no's can be helpful and even necessary. Without no's, of course, we have no protected boundaries or, or identity. Mm -hmm. So we need to to know how to protect ourselves with the necessary no. And in that case, that no will be as sacred as the yes. But again, for that to happen, we should always begin with a foundational yes. A yes of foundational acceptance of reality and openness to the unpredictable unfolding of things, especially during these dark nights of the soul. And by doing so, we'll, we will be carried through the darkest of times as dark as they may be, receiving solace when most needed, and we will reach that inner place where we are always truly understood. We need shelter. But shelter is always there. It's just a matter of us behaving accordingly. So anyhow, some words in connection to this idea of the dark night of the soul. And let me share a few words of conclusion of today's talk, as usual, a little wrap-up, wrapping up and closing the curtain. So, and closing the curtain to this sub-series on divine ignorance as well. So the idea is trust the mystery. Trust the, trust the mystery that God is. Generally, we trust things that, we are, that are not mystery. We trust things that we know, that are for certain. We trust that. But if something is a mystery, the last thing we feel with a mystery is trust. <laughs> Generally, we feel fear. We feel distrust. We feel threatening with mystery. But as I hope you have realized, in this particular case, we need to trust mystery. It's a very important thing. So this darkness or this holy unknowing, as we have talked this this class, is the actual opposite of confusion and ignorance because sometimes darkness is compared with ignorance and confusion. But here we are speaking of another type of darkness. In, in, in the case of confusion, what's confusion? Confu confusion actually happens when mystery is an enemy. That's confusion. When we feel mystery must be solved so we can master our destinies, that's confusion. Mm -hmm. to, to annihilate darkness in that way. Mm -hmm. 
However, in the liberation of darkness, in the liberation that happens in the dark night of the soul, we are freed from having to figure out things. That's such freedom. Try to imagine such relief. We will be able to find the light in, in knowing that we don't know. Such a relief again. So therefore, we need to learn how to find relief and shelter in mystery and in unknowing. How to find mystery, relief in divine ignorance, basically. So as we already mentioned, we are Gaudiya Vaishnavas, and our goal as Gaudiyas is to unknow Krishna as God, to stop seeing him as such, and ultimately in the Lilas, it will happen in the Braj. But before obtaining the Gyan Sunya Bhakti of the Brajavasis, that they through which they see Krishna in loving terms, but not as God, first, before reaching that, we first need to go through all these other forms of divine ignorance before reaching such Gyan Sunya Bhakti. And the different forms of divine ignorance are the ones we share in this series. We need first to make friends with uncertainty, doubt, <clears throat> paradox, what else? Unknowing, chaos, mystery, darkness, and learn to coexist with them for eternity, not for a weekend, for a while. So after doing that homework ourselves, then we will be able at some point to forget that Krishna is Bhagavan in a proper way and serve him the unique way that the Brajavas are serving and loving him. So I'm saying this why, because remember all these topics that we are sharing in our series of radical personalism are not disconnected from our goal, our ultimate attainment for Gaudiya Vaishnavas in the Brajali, in the Gaur Lila, but actually they are deeply connected with and in service of this ultimate idea that we have as Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Without this proper foundation and understanding, our ultimate goal may be just a science fiction conception or something. So we, make, we want to make it as real, as real, as sustainable as we can. So we are concluding, therefore, here our series on divine ignorance, these three last classes. I'll share a brief homework for those of us who would like to do it, which is try to reflect about your last experience with the dark night of the soul and how you have reacted to those moments and what you can improve for the next dark night or the next chapter of it in your life. So next Tuesday, we will be starting a new series. We are reaching the end of the whole Radical Personalism series. Still, we'll have a few, a little bit more than a month, so a few more weeks. <clears throat> but the next two classes, we'll start a new sub-series on contemplative prayer. So the first part, we will be speaking about the art of sacred appeal. And as you may imagine, this is a very connected topic from divine ignorance and all that it implies, we will overflow, the topic will overflow into a related section, contemplative prayer, the realm of contemplative prayer, which will be a place, a practice to exercise, to implement all these things that we have been talking in this last series on divine ignorance. So see you next Tuesday to continue with this. Sri Gaur Hari Ki Jai. Shri Hari Nam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Shri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramananda Haribo, Vancha Kalpata Rubyascha, Kripasandu Fiyayi Vacha, 
अतीतानम पवाने वैष्णवेभ्यो नमो नम अनाथ कोतिवैष्णव वृंद की जय गौड़ हरी बोल